Hello, my friends, and thank you for listening to today's episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. And that thank you is sincere. At this point, we've recorded 20 episodes and much more is planned. And your continued listening is beyond appreciated. So please feel free to write a review where you get this podcast as it really helps grow the audience and helps me uh, and allows me to keep bringing this weird and wacky take on theater history to you twice a month. Now, I'm still relatively new to the podcasting game, but I've already been able to network with some amazing people in this trade. So I want to share with you some picks for great podcasts and their hosts who I have been able to connect with, because if you like this show, you should enjoy theirs as well. The first takes a very academic and chronological look at the history of European theater. In fact, that's the name of the show, The History of European Theater. For each episode, host Philip Rowe deeply explores a facet of European theater in succession. Starting with the meaning of theater in the Western world, Philip has a multitude of episodes that begin with the Greek theater and has made his way up to the medieval era. In fact, the episode discussing the Satyr play was used as a reference from my 12th episode titled The Rites of Dionysus. Each of Philip's episodes is only about a half hour long, and trust me, you'll feel a lot smarter about theater after listening to just one. The history of European theater. You find that on all major podcast providers, but I'll also leave a link to the show's website in the summary of this episode. Next is an approach to history similar to my own, the podcast History Defeats Itself. For each episode, a trio of friends get together. One of them is assigned to research and present a topic to ask the age-old question, is history doomed to repeat itself? The other two hosts are completely left in the dark about the topic until they record, very similar to the format of Euripides Humanities. Often, the concepts are approached with apprehensive humor and not so much a fatalist attitude as the title suggests, but rather a glimmer of hope that humanity actually might still be evolving. I particularly recommend the episode regarding the names of American sports teams and their mascots, which in recent years has become quite a topic of discussion, especially considering the often negative depiction of indigenous peoples in America. Always funny and always poignant, History Defeats Itself is a great listen, and I'll leave a link to their website in this episode's description as well. Now, if you followed this show at all, you know that I have just completed directing a truly phenomenal production of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The cast and audience had a beautifully sexy time at the theater, and we plan to get the production repeated on an annual basis. However, for this podcast, that production took up a lot of my time in the past few weeks, so I didn't have a lot of time to get a new episode ready for you. Fortunately, I recently became friends with producer Richard Jordan, who is an absolute fountain of knowledge about what makes a show in today's theater work and why they might not be so successful sometimes. Richard and I recorded episodes 9 and 10, in which we dissected the Broadway run of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, but oftentimes our conversation delved into other topics. Most of that content didn't make it into the episodes, but is still incredibly valuable content regarding the success of plays and musicals in the Western world. So today, I give you something of a Frankenstein's monster sewn from the discarded parts of a fascinating conversation. Please enjoy this mishmash of a mini-sode, and we'll be back to you with some new content in a couple of weeks. Thanks. (laughs) 
My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Next yeah. thing, of course, they come back to, which of course brings us back into a Spider-Man situation, is when they have the idea of bringing Judy Tamor on mm-hmm. and creating something that's extraordinary with the Lion King. Right. Now, the Lion King is also interesting because, of course, it creates animals on stage, something that you know audiences are amazed by through her her paperwork and her designs oh. and her puppetry. But yeah. you actually have to also flip back there to 1991 and to look also at what was going on in the West End at that moment, where John Napier, the extraordinary designer of musicals in the 80s, such as Cats, uh-huh. Saigon, Les Miserables, created a show called Children of Eden. And Children right, of right, Eden, right, right. the design of that show, which opened at the Prince Edward Theatre, Stephen Schwartz's musical that was, um, uh, was following, uh, uh, following on, obviously, from um, you know, Godspell and all those others. This was, his, this was his big musical that he was making with John Caird. John Caird, the co-director of um, Les Miserables, uh, original director mm-hmm. of the, mm-hmm. uh, Don Black and for musical Song and Dance. Um, and this was Schwartz's huge musical. And actually, it opens, it's an example of, of, like, it's a bird, it's a plain Spider-Man. It opens at the wrong point. Because right. it perhaps opened at the same time as all those superstars and all those big... 80s West End musical, it could well have been a hit oh, yeah. because it was a pretty extraordinary musical. It was the set of it was built into this huge concave, so it looked like it was a broken inside of the earth. So it's like you were looking through stained glass going outwards of it. But mm. into that, if you if you know that musical, the second half is the story of Noah. And into yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. John Napier does these extraordinary animal designs mm-hmm. in which animals start, the actors start playing with clever puppetry and, and oh. stuff, and elephants and different Are animals. you and kidding me? Fast- and it's fascinating when you look at that. And go on and go on and look at the pictures because mm-hmm. it's also interesting that that was being done on the stage in '91 because it opened and it only yeah. ran for, for less than three months. Yeah. Partly because of the uh, because of the first Iraq War that happened. Oh which right, 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 right. Caused its caused its closure and a lot of other things. It was meant to be uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, Royal Shakespeare Company went to produce it. It was meant to be their next musical after Carrie. But because mm-hmm. Carrie didn't go so well for yep. them, the musical theatre got kind of <laughs> abandoned. So the show then got picked up by a commercial company to produce it, and it was just uh, a litany of different problems. Just, wow. That musical features, if you listen to the original score, uh, which is an album which is now quite rare to find, because Ken Page, the great Broadway actor, came over to play yeah, yeah, yeah. that show. Uh, mm-hmm. It had um, uh, some of many actors like um, Ruthie Henschel in it, Ray Shell, 
um, actors who in the British musical theatre scene went on to become massive musical theatre stars, one of mm-hmm. the greatest ensembles of all time. And it's a phenomenal score, Children of Eden, which is really greatly uh, you know, uh, uh, overlooked. And I think Schwartz is very interesting because Schwartz, is just as a separate note, as a, as, a, as a composer, I think has a versatility that's unique in that you've got Godspell, you've got Wicked, you've got The Baker's Wife, you've got Shippenader, this wonderful Viennese musical he's just done. There's very few music composers who have such a breadth of writing. But in Children of Eden, I think there is something quite extraordinary about that musical and the influences of that, particularly in design. I just wonder, and I you know, would never know the answer, I just wonder if Judy Tamer ever, ever you know, saw those pictures or indeed was doing something in her own way at that point. But actually, right, right, right. a lot of the animal designs and drawings, how he emulates that on stage. Uh-huh. It's actually fascinating to see how a long time later than Broadway, of course, yeah. creates its, I mean, maybe some Disney executives saw it. You never know. You never know. And yes, yes. Time. But the oh, influence that could be of interesting. that—that's interesting. Okay, certainly serves mm. something in a, in, in yeah. another way, and certainly you know, undisputed, what Taymor does with her designs mm. creates an artistic fusion on Broadway of the of the movie mm-hmm. and the musical in a way that's not being done in another way. It's, it's what makes Lion King a groundbreaking show when she Absolutely. comes out with that design. Absolutely, and actually, yes. therefore, when Spider Man comes along, <laughs> you know, sometime later, it's understandable why people would say, well, if we need to come and reinvent this, what a, what a person that we need to turn what and, a person. And, and talk about doing it. Right, right. But don't yes. forget, they're also ultimately on this great strife because what they have now is the fact that they are making a commercial musical. Oh, so yes. it begins yes. from its seat. Look at Rocky Horror. It begins uh-huh. in its seats upstairs at the Royal Court Theatre in 120 seats. Right. And it takes several stages to become a hit. It, mm-hmm. you know, people look at Rocky Horror now, the global franchise that it is, and say, wow, that's a hit commercial musical. What people do not right. think about with yeah. Rocky Horror, and it's a really important thing, is that when that show opened in the 70s, it began in a studio theatre. It yeah. then moved to an old cinema on the King's Road in London where it played <laughs> for a few years and it positioned itself in a certain way and it gained it gained an audience. Then it moved into the West End and it came to the Comedy Theatre in, 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 in the West End and played there then for a number of years. What people also forget about Rocky Horror is, of course, we all remember now that when we go and see it, the fun of dressing up and the yelling of all the, right. the, the, the lines. You have to remember, and this is a really important, that did not start until the movie. Right. So that stuff, the show had been in existence before all of that happened. The reason it began in in, in the movie is because the movie came out and the movie was actually quite a disaster. I mean, Rocky Horror had, Rocky Horror firstly had flopped off Broadway in in the US. It had not found a market. When Lou Adler and Michael White produced that show over there, it was a disaster. It came and it went. So what happened uh, then was the movie came along. The movie actually was a pretty unsuccessful, uh, unsuccessful movie. Right. Um, it didn't get the it didn't get the showing that it should do. But then one, one night, and in these great moments of, of of history and a bit of luck, <laughs> it got shown as a late night movie downtown mm-hmm. in in New York. And in the audience, there was a man sitting there called Sal Paro. Okay, and mm-hmm. Sal Paro watched this late night midnight showing and thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. And <laughs> if I remember correctly, he begged the movie coming to show it again the following week with the promise he would bring some more of his friends to see it. 
So he brought a group of his friends to see that movie the following week, and they, like him, thought it was the funniest thing they ever saw. And they begged the movie house in that downtown New York City oh to show God. it again the next week. And they did, and they brought some more friends. And slowly they started yelling things out at the screen as the show was going forward. Oh my and God! That's, that's how so Rocky Horror became a cult. Sal Paro became, I think he's, I think he's still alive, uh, but he became the president of the Rocky Horror Show Worldwide Fan Club. Oh, because perfect. of that one man happening to be at that cinema at that point, seeing that film, it changed the fortunes of a movie that probably <laughs> otherwise would have just gone into the trash can and sat as a sort of strange cult classic that might have right. appeared occasionally. Right. And you have to remember that the journey, if you're trying to emulate Rocky Horror and that young audience and how it how it became hip and cool, it began in a way, in a really specific way, closer to, to that situation. And another good example, but a very important lesson that actually could be learnt, could have been learnt for Spider-Man, is to look at the Boy George musical Taboo. Now, oh, Taboo I forgot about that. that. Now, Taboo is a show that began in the early 2000s at a venue in London called The Venue, small 300-seat <laughs> theatre, score written by Boy George. It's a fantastic mm -hmm. score. If you've not heard it, if people are listening, listen to the London cast recording. Don't listen to what happened when they did it as a Broadway recording. Oh. Because it ran for a couple of years in, in London. And then um, it, it came along with the desire to be picked up and uh, picked up and, 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 and moved to, um, to uh, Broadway. Um, Rosie O'Donnell. Okay, I've got it. Oh, my Rosie God. O'Donnell. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, that, so it came on. It ran for two years in London. And then Rosie O'Donnell, who was the, you know, famous, you know, New York, you know, US yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, TV yeah, yeah. host, actress, comedian, saw it and wanted to bring it to Broadway. Oh my so God. she moved the production to Broadway, but with a new book written by uh, Charles Bush, American, you know, artist, actor, most famous, yeah. I've a play called The Tale of the Allergist Wife. So all these okay. little nuggets about London and about the Taboo Club in London, which is right. where um, you know, Boy George and all these crazy guys and, and girls uh. all the house was sort of adapted because they didn't think a broadway audience was going to fully understand all of this so she moved it into the plymouth plymouth theater in uh in uh in new york massive theater to open this broadway musical in and of course it opened and it didn't run for very long it got terrible reviews it was actually perceived as it was going to be the hit of the season it opened in the same season as wicked and avenue q but actually oh man okay didn't find traction she brought boy george over they famously fell out together on the whole show at the time <laughs> And actually, the show became an unmitigated disaster. However, if that show had gone off Broadway, say into the theatre where Stomp plays, a little 400-seat theatre, uh, you know, somewhere like a Jane Street theatre, even if that was still there, mm -hmm. where Hedwig had played, or a smaller house, and had built up that cult following, the step next to Broadway might have been a very, you know, logical right. Effectively, though, a lot of songs, as you rightly said, Aaron, if you dissect a U2 song, it is a thematic song that has an arc from beginning to end in what they want to say in that one number. The thing yeah. with the musical is, you know, in, in a way, you have to ask the question always when you produce a musical, why do they need to stop speaking and start singing? Yeah, and in exactly. a sense, um, and it's a really important note, actually, in musicals, because... Otherwise, you could just do a, you might as well just do a play, just do the, right. the lines. And so, so in a way, what you create is if you're creating just a thematic song, you mm. are not traveling the show. Now, in a strange way, that is a harking back. And maybe it was an influence to what they were listening with some of those old musicals. Because if you maybe. think of a lot of those musicals in the olden days, they used to come out a bit of dialogue, sing It's a Lovely Day in, I don't know, Baltimore. <laughs> and then actually, they would, but nothing would have moved from when the song began to when the song ended and hadn't yeah. traveled. Yeah. If you think about 
the arrival of the through-sung musical, we began a linear traveling of the show. And in a way, that's really important. You've got to hit the ground, you've got to keep it running. Whereas actually with, with Spider-Man, it was quite enjoyable to watch because it was like each time it was a little vignette of a song, but it didn't right. really progress as much further from where we got from one point, one point right. to the other. And, <laughs> exactly. and actually that reflected a lot in the U2 thematic you know, structure of, of, of writing. Mm-hmm. And then it did get to a point, and, and no disrespect to any of the cast who I thought did a sterling job, but yeah. you did get to the point at the end of saying, well, if I'm just listening to this sort of YouTube music being played in this particular way inside the theatre, I could be going and watching a YouTube tribute act. Yeah, because right. Actually, right. in a way, you, because it was very odd, the original production, because they also put the guitarists on the wings playing. Oh, so really? So had these actors who, who, who they weren't actors, they were actually musicians, so they actually made a feature of the guitarists playing on stage, on the on the stage right and stage left side. No kidding. Which was, which was a bit of an odd, which was a bit of an odd decision, but it was yeah. one that... Um, that they that they chose chose to do. I think, if I remember correctly, was it Reeve Carney? I think of yep. who was the mm-hmm. original. Well, I think it was one. I think one of them was his brother, actually, who was in the show and was a guitarist. And I have a feeling huh. there was a there was a connection with him also on the show. Oh yeah, because they have a, um, they, they have a band or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So there was an element of that. But okay, that's okay. But in the truth, you've got the idea that it's the Edge who's this great guitarist and actually you're setting yourself up for a big fall because how are you ever going to, you know, no disrespect to any of them. No. How are you ever going to correct with that iconic image of what you're, of what you, you're seeing? So in a way, you can. I, didn't get, I didn't get the logic of, of why that was there. I always wondered why Disney didn't put more into The Hunchback of Notre Dame because... Yeah. I love that musical. The music for that is just extraordinary and such a departure from like the very family friendly fair that they have been uh, yeah. very well known for with, you know, like uh, Ashman writing, you know, uh, Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and uh, yeah. uh, Little Mermaid. But, you know, I was, I was just like, this, this seems like a, a no brainer for Broadway. And it's kind of like appealing to more of a, big book musical that has been written kind of in the vein of Lee Miz or something. And it's interesting because Hunchback did have a production in Europe. Right. There was a production that Paper Mill Playhouse did a production a few a few years ago mm-hmm. where there is now actually a, a recording in English that you can you can hear at the show. Um it is a surprise, but there's also a long running French musical called Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Long Notre oh. Dame de Paris, uh which uh, had plays has played in arenas and stadiums across Europe. It came to London and it actually had a run at the Dominion Theatre in sort of early 2000s, uh, not Uh very successfully, but it actually more recently came back in another revival at the very large Coliseum Theatre in London as part of a tour. And whether they suddenly thought they were in some competition, because this... This musical has been in the ether and, and actually it's had productions in Korea and in Japan. And there's there's a number of different language cast recordings of that show available. Huh. So whether Disney just felt that it was, you know, a market that had already been tapped and, and, and a Hunchback was therefore not a viable property to try and spend the money that it was it was looking at doing. I mean, they went off in the path of looking at things like doing Aida and those shows. And oh, right. Aida's yeah, been yeah, interesting because yeah. Aida's never been done in, in, in the UK or in right. It's had several successful productions in Europe. They've held that title away from the UK, which is surprising. I like a lot of Aida. I think a lot of Aida is actually a very, very good score. Yeah. Um, and again, El, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic score with with uh, Tim Rice and Elton John, if I remember correctly, again, on, mm-hmm. on, on, yep. on, on that collaboration. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
as soon as I saw that Shrek was going to become a musical, I'm like, great. Now we're going to have about 8,000 shitty high school productions of Shrek. Because if you're going to produce something, the scale that is intended in that script, you have to have the money to do it. I, with Trident Theater, will never, well, uh, knock on wood, will never be able to produce Frozen. Because I do, the space here doesn't exist. I would have to completely reinvent it somewhere. I would have to have a budget coming out my ears. I can't do it. So it's like, so what is that doing for the, the, the livelihood of the Broadway book musical? Yeah, it's a huge problem. And I mean, it's interesting because I mean, Shrek, I was a bit indifferent, but I, I didn't mind its original Broadway production. I, I felt it's, it's not landed in other productions of it I've seen elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, yeah. they, 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 you know, it's actually enough where they tried to cut the cost back on it and actually realized that a lot of the expenditure of Shrek was what made it very, you know, successful. But I mean, there was also yes. lots of things. I mean, it was very well cast. Brian D'Arcy James and oh, yeah. you know, the original production thing was, yeah. was Sutton Foster. I mean, it was a fantastic cast to kick the ground running. Absolutely. But, you know, it was interesting when those people started to leave, there mm-hmm. wasn't a longevity of that show that sat in the same way that could carry it forwards, which was which was a valuable lesson to sit down and learn with it. I mean, with, with Frozen, it was interesting because Frozen didn't sustain the length of run that it perhaps would have expected for that title to have done on Broadway. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's it did something, but it didn't it didn't succeed in the length that it that it needed yeah. to, to to sit down and take really. And in fact, Frozen is is scheduled to open in August in London, and, and yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it might run for I think it might run for longer in London, strangely, mm-hmm. than it did do on, and then it did do on Broadway. And just the event factor of what it of what it contains and what it carries. But I do think that there is an interesting question about you know, effectively what they were trying to maybe make. I mean, you know, if Spider-Man had gone in and been built as this sort of arena thing and had played this, a, a massive season in, in Radio City Music Hall and had then gone off and toured extensively to, to larger arena yeah. type theatres in, in a Bono Edge kind of structure, which culminated in Las Vegas, that show probably would have been a, would have been a very different entity. To, it, to might have have. Show, it might have. It might yeah. have. Also, it might have also worked in a way. I, you have to remember one thing about Spider-Man, which is important, and we'll come on to that once it opens, but there is a particularly important point about Spider-Man when we talk about flops, which is that Spider-Man actually still retains, I think, or I don't know if anything's knocked it off, but it had done for a long time, and, and one might need to go back and double-check this. Oh, I, I think but I know where you're the going. Best of my knowledge, the highest weekly gross of yep. a musical of all time. Yeah, yeah. And, I think, I think you it was know, like $2 million gross in a week. The problem was its break weekly running cost was so high yep. that for any other show, if you dropped a bit... You, you you could probably sustain that in in you know in recovery around it maybe in other weeks or losses. Yep. Spider Man, if it if it if you know, if it did seven hundred thousand when it was needing to do a million in a week, it would it, it was very fine line to just suddenly jeopardizing it very very quickly. And when it peaked, of course, with its first season, but then its second season suddenly landing of new Broadway shows, it then really struggled to maintain its position, and that's yep. where things started yep. to get. And that's actually where they should have put a Gene Simmons and Alice Cooper in if they'd wanted to keep it going. Because oh, yeah. that actually would have given it its life on Broadway to compete with. And perhaps they didn't do that because maybe they did think this has got some Vegas legs maybe one day. And actually, why do we want to throw our mm-hmm. card down for a second cast yep. and actually just hold that card out for when we want to play it in a big arena yep. space inside Vegas or somewhere? I yeah. do want to go back to Frozen really quick. Uh, our local roadhouse, the YO, that I work with quite a lot, has started this fun new um, like YO play initiative, and they took over a, uh, a children's theater uh, production company that has been in town for like 25 some years. 
And so this year they're doing Frozen Junior. And my younger son is a little bit more uh, artistically inclined. He really enjoys musicals. We'll sit down and watch them quite often. I, I mean, my, he's 10, but Sweeney Todd is his favorite musical. He just loves it. Um, and so when I presented him with the idea of, uh, uh, of doing this show that they do this summer, uh, they're doing Frozen Junior. And uh, <laughs> my mother was with him at the time. And I said, hey, uh, why don't you ask uh, Ethan if he wants to do uh, Frozen Junior? And let me see if I can find his comment because it, it just cracked me up. He says he would definitely not, not like to do Frozen because it is disgusting and trash and should be removed from history. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, that's, uh, that's a bit straight to the point, but yeah, I guess he doesn't like it. <laughs> it does say something actually isn't it it's, yeah doesn't uh, it i mean it's, it's actually um interesting because if you think about it was quite a clever maneuver i mean it's totally different thinking about wicked when mm -hmm. um uh uh wicked did its run originally with indina menzel mm -hmm. and uh, it was very interesting with that young generation of girls who went to see it with their mums right how clever it was some years later when they did uh if then which was the the musical yep. that latterly came because yep. actually what they realized was within dina menzel that a lot of those young girls who came through were now young following women, her and actually they were following through following her yep so of course it gave a hook of success for that musical to happen because oh. actually what it did was it could spoil it now what it meant was that when Indina Menzel was to leave that show really didn't necessarily have legs or a life beyond it but it was quite an interesting marketing strategy that where you know mm -hmm. you you carry an audience forward and actually you know that now they can come and they're just at a point where they're starting to date and they're you know maybe yep. at college or university and things and actually that musical would suddenly connect with them in that in that yep. in that certain way and indeed if they had become mothers they were perhaps also at the same time taking their daughters to see right what Right, and now it's a rite of passage. Oh my God! Yeah. Wow. Okay. And there's an interesting question here, you see, Aaron, as well. Which, when you're looking at it, does the star matter? It arguably yeah, it right? doesn't necessarily, because in a way, um, unless you've got some. You know, unless you've got Hugh Jackman, that a young audience is perhaps going to know who are moviegoers. These musical names won't mean so much. The branded title still right. sticks in the same right. way as it is with spider-man and in a way it's such a strong branded title yeah. it's like in the same way as when you look at the phantom of the opera it's such a strong brand now it doesn't really matter who's playing the phantom the audience is coming because they associate the image and the identity right you know, there's a few shows that can achieve that and actually that is the investor's dream the mm. investor's mm -hmm. dream is where you can have a show where the brand becomes so strong that it doesn't actually matter you say, look at hamilton you know it doesn't yeah. matter who's playing hamilton now the brand is so strong and that's that's an investor's dream and spider-man still to the investor is a very attractive title because right. it doesn't necessarily suggest it needs a star to make that because the star is a pretty big name in its in itself right so but but even at that a, time even at that time that was such a trend on broadway uh especially in non-musicals it's like how can we get yeah. some big name actor out there i remember i think it was around this time when scarlett johansson was cast as uh what's her name margaret in uh a view from the bridge uh and the bridge? yeah yeah, I mean, brilliant play, and no slight to Scarlett Johansson's acting, but um, you know how how are we going to be assured that she would be able to do that level of performance on Broadway? Yeah. 
Oh, and then she got a Tony for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a theory that there's always been stars on in theatre, film stars doing theatre. I mean, Lawrence Olivier, of course, stage yeah. star, film star, he was doing that. It's it's what's become interesting now is that actually it becomes frequently that there's a film star who has a window who can hop on and do something. And some of those have come with with far more mixed results than others. I mean, uh, you know, Julie, Julia Roberts, as a as a case in point, in Three Days of Rain, was right. was dis, was disappointing in that production, but she right. sold out the house because it was Julia Roberts. Right. And there's certain names of it. Con- conversely, you know, Sean Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, and Raising in the Sun, yeah. uh, was absolutely fantastic in that right. production. Um, so you know, it, it really depends on, on, on marriage with the vehicle and the right show. But what mm-hmm. we are in interested in interesting zone in now is that you've got actors who predominantly can commit to 16 weeks in a run. You're not right. talking about how those actors who once used to come on and maybe commit to a year or or, 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 or 10 months in a show, we're talking about very short hits. Yeah, it's And that's actually also another another factor on another factor on Broadway and, and, and West End commercial producing. There is, and particularly in drama, there's not a belief any longer that a can play can necessarily run. You know, if you look back ah. on plays when they opened, if you had Woman in Black now, which has been played many years in the West End, if it was coming to, I think it's the West End's longest running play, or, or, or sort of, you know, the Mousetrap is probably the second longest running play. If the if Woman in Black was arriving right now uh, as a play to be produced, it would be given probably a 12 to 16 week window in right. the West End theatre <laughs> with another show booked in after it. There wouldn't be the belief that shows which they used to be able to do could recast and keep running. If you look at drama so often now, mm-hmm. it just goes straight in as a short flash from the pan hit and then it it doesn't it doesn't have that that longevity of extension, right. and that's a really big change to to and, and not actually necessarily a terribly good one. Um, you know, the ability to recast in long running plays has really affected the dichotomy of a lot of drama getting onto commercial stages. Right. Yeah. I always remember the aspects of love preview in London in. Uh, 1989 and that was very complicated because they'd had a very checkered time getting that show on roger moore you know aka 007 uh-huh. was due to play george in that role the older the older the older man in that show uh big lead role and, and had decided in the end that he was going to leave because vocally he just couldn't sing it so oh. that had de- that had, but he'd been in rehearsal he just suddenly at one point decided it wasn't working and he was going to leave so oh they had God. to bring in another well actually his his understood a wonderful actor called Kevin Colson who'd also had a quite distinguished mm-hmm. west end career moved up to take that role but they obviously had now a lot of delay because it required a lot of changes the problem they had in in this preview period was they had a a, a royal gala performance that was yeah. scheduled in the preview period, which of course meant that they had to go ahead and do this performance because it was a scheduled performance. So although everything was delayed and suspended, they had one gap where there was no shows either side, but this Royal Gala performance had to happen. So the Royal Gala performance went ahead, which was effectively the first preview, mm-hmm. only for other shows to have. A, well, I mean, there was one point in it, which was, uh, interesting in that particular show and I, I never saw it but I had someone who was working on it who was telling me about this one particular show because in the show in Aspects of Love on Broadway uh, in the West End a wonderful production designed by Maria Benjorson who designed the set for the Phantom of the Opera it's her next show after that Benjorson fantastic uh, designer who sadly passed away far too young but 
the aspects of love design was amazing but there was a there was a song in it uh, in the start of the first act uh, after love changes everything uh, there's a sequence where uh, he uh, um, uh, alex the, the the young lover you know falls in love with the with the with the actress and they they make an escape to george's uh, sort of <laughs> chateau in, this, in in france and they go in a car and they get into this car and they sing the song and the next trick was that the car the end of the number went upwards into the into the um, into the flies, which was how the, the, the piece of scenery exited. Yeah. They exited from a bridge, and then <laughs> basically the car in, in the in the mechanics in the flies tilted vertically, drove along the rig, and then moved backwards. And that was how it was stored because the wings of the Prince of Wales Theatre aren't aren't very easy to, to manipulate. So this piece of technical equipment had to be the first piece of equipment to go in on the on the loading or the getting into the theatre, oh so gosh. it could fix into the into the grid. So on this first performance of this happening, they did this sequence, and as the car went upwards, the car accidentally tilted backwards. No! Through the two actors, which made um, Michael Ball, uh, who was playing the role of Alex, a British actor, uh, sort of suddenly sort of yell out in a, almost swear in shock because he thought he was about to be flipped out of the car. And it went upwards into the bridge and they exited. Um, but it was decided that that wasn't liked and, and it was only ever seen on that one performance. Now, oh for the rest God. of the run, because it was the first piece of scenery that had to go in... <laughs> And it ran for about, I think, about four years at the Prince of Wales Theatre. That car stayed suspended above the stage for the entire run. It was never used again in a single performance. Oh, my God. So this one <laughs> Royal Gala performance that sat, oh. segued between rehearsals, because when the Royal Gala ended, they went back into rehearsal again because they just had to do this one performance. Uh, this car, this expensive piece of scenery just sat there for the rest of the time. Oh and then, of God. course, that, that one preview went out of the way. And then some weeks later, they went back in and did the first previous preview run and eventually opened. If it had been today that had happened, well, of course, the Twitter and the social oh, media yeah. would have gone mad. And actually, the show probably would have been lambasted about how a disaster it was and everything. And would it have recovered from that? Would it have actually gone on to sustain the run that it actually did enjoy in, in, in the West right. End and has been revived since? happens on, on shows of all scales. I can remember very early on when I worked in theatre management at a regional theatre, we used to take sometimes Saturday morning shows coming in and playing, you know, over the top of something else. And I remember at one point we had the Mr. Men come. And I don't know if you know the Mr. Men, but you've got Mr. Happy and Mr. Bump and Mr. Tickle and all this stuff. Okay, and this yeah. was basically a, a show which was produced by a producer who, let's just say, was somewhat, you know, unscrupulous as a producer i would i would suspect <laughs> he's probably the sort of producer you'd you'd shake his hand and want to count how many fingers he'd, you'd walk away with afterwards ah, but anyway okay. he was he was uh, he was producing his saturday morning show and all i can remember on this particular performance was that mr bub they were like great big velvet you know, sort of costumes they sort of wall one dance these these dancers yeah. wearing, but they're quite hard to see out of and unfortunately <laughs> mr mr bump and mr happy had a collision which involved mr happy falling into the orchestra pit and mr <laughs> happy unfortunately unfortunately broke his leg or her leg because it was a oh God. female dancer and all i can remember is the ambulance these terror these kids the show stopping with these these sort of 10 year old and eight year old kids all looking anxiously over the over the orchestra pit down at mr happy lied down there with the ambulance crew turning up and the uh, the producer standing down at the front in a paddock saying don't cut the costume because we're i need i need it because we're in canterbury tomorrow <laughs> and i thought well there you go that's uh, that sort of that sort of sums it up that was like welcome to the theater
think about when cats came along, they couldn't raise the money for cats at all. Right. To such an, to such an extent that at one point, Cameron McIntosh asked the cast if they could go away and find out if they knew anyone who had any money. <laughs> Lloyd, Lloyd, Lloyd Webber remortgaged his house twice. They put it into a theatre that was the New London, which in those days was a white elephant. Trevor mm. Nunn, who now is a very successful musical theatre director, had not directed a, a, a commercial musical before. The show right. was an idea of T.S. Eliot's poems with, with, with Andrew Lloyd musical actors dancing around playing cats for an evening. How the <laughs> heck do you sell that? I mean, when you think about it, how the heck do you sell that in a theatre that's been a white elephant, which has been a TV studio for years and actually hasn't been used as a theatre? Uh, they then end up with Judy Dench in the cast, great right? right. piece of cast. He was going to be the original Grisabella, who in rehearsals cracks her Achilles tendon, so she's out of the show and can't Oh, open my God. It. Luckily, Elaine Page, who'd come off of Vita, was available, so she could slot in with not much rehearsal. The opening performances of previews get underway, and uh, on the opening night of the show, uh, still without it being fully capitalised, uh, they have a bomb scare at the theatre. So the theatre oh my God. Great on the on its opening on its opening night, um, and they go uh, they go back in for Act Two, and the audience is so electric because they've not seen something like that on the stage before. The reviews are so phenomenal. The show runs oh. for twenty one years. Simplest thing can be absolutely amazing if you get the if you get the stagecraft and the, and and the and the trick right. You know, with right. It. And, yes. Exactly. It's actually, it's actually all again like with any musical or any play. You have the question. It's all in the storytelling and it's mm -hmm. all in the structure of script and book. And if you've got that, and you've got an audience who's coming with imagination. You can yeah. really play with, and that's the joy of stagecraft. I mean, you know, if you can get it right and how you deliver it, it's mm -hmm. about, isn't it, that ability to tell a story. And that's yep. in any sense, you know, if you take it in a completely you know, non-magical sense, but you take Oklahoma and you listen to the first chords of Oklahoma right. that get played. Right. Yeah, those first chords are so important because how do you score a sunrise? Well, yeah. I think Rod, Richard Rogers does it like a piece of genius in, in Oklahoma. And yeah, those bars are, are so important <laughs> because it, it wouldn't matter then if the stage was completely black and you just had one spotlight. The music right. is taking you to that place. It mm -hmm. sets it up because it punctuates it so beautifully. We're placed just on those notes. And then, of course, Curly comes out and sings those opening lines. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether we're sitting in New York in Oklahoma, in, in Norwich and England, uh, you know, uh -huh. in, in Johannesburg, wherever we are watching that show, we are placed in that show immediately because the book and music have perfectly fused together and given us that stage placement. And actually mm -hmm. what's happened is it doesn't matter with any of the effects around it. It's, it's actually the music has basically given the grounding to that actor to come on and say, this is where we are, the confidence of it, that the actor right. can come out and attack, and then he can tell you the story. And if you can't root it into that ability of the storytelling first, and if the book doesn't work, where you can not tell this story without any of the effects that are attached to it, uh, yeah, if that's not working, then there's an intrinsic problem with the show. Well, my friends, that is it for today's episode. I hope you appreciated that. Richard has so much stuff to talk about, and we got into a lot of really wonderful conversations. I know that I will have him on the show again sometime in the future. But for now, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, signing off for another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. Hope to see you again in two weeks, and I will see you at intermission.